Uh, so I have to tell you, I've been thinking a lot this week, uh, kind of thinking back to some stories, and I, I was sharing with my wife today, I was thinking about uh, many, many years ago, right after I graduated from, um, from college, and I had actually met Christy in college in, in Arizona, and we met there. I was from, um, from Orange County, California, and she's actually from Portland, Oregon, and I moved up right after graduation to Portland to go to seminary, and um, she ended up transferring... Um, to Warner Pacific so she could live at home. Um, mostly, she said for financial, but I'm pretty sure it was because of me. And um, so I was moving to Portland. Uh, so I was feeling pretty, pretty good about that. We actually, uh, I moved up here, um, started going to school. She was going to school. I, had a, I was a part-time youth pastor, not making much money. I really, really, I mean, we hadn't been dating very long, but I just was crazy for her. I really wanted to marry her when I could afford it, and I thought it was going to take a little bit more time. And one day, I was uh, at, her, at her parents' house, and um, I got to know her family really quick. She's got a sister and three brothers, and her mom and dad are just amazing people. And I was over there one evening, kind of hanging out, and she wasn't there. I think she was probably uh, babysitting or at school that evening. So I was there, and everything at their house kind of happens in the kitchen. So I remember her mom was cooking in the kitchen. It was in the evening, and her dad was kind of hanging around. He just—he was a fifth-grade teacher. He just gotten home, and he was having some snacks. And her sister was there, and uh, in the, just in the middle of kind of talking, and Christy wasn't there. Her dad kind of turned to me, real serious, and he said, "He said, you know, I, 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 we really like you, and and we're pretty sure that you you love our daughter." And we're pretty sure she loves you. And so I don't know what you're waiting for. And uh, he said, I, I, got a, I got a proposition for you. Now, her mom's cooking dinner and she kind of stops because she obviously hasn't heard any of this. And she's kind of standing there in back of him. And he says, I'll make you a deal. He's like, because I know weddings are really expensive. I got two daughters. I know it's going to cost a lot, so I'll make you a deal. Um, I've got a diamond, he says, that I got from my mother. And I'll give you that diamond and I will, I will pay to have it put in a ring, to set in a ring, and I'll give you $1,000 cash if you'll just go elope with my daughter. And, and he said, I'll talk to your dad. I'll bet your dad would match it. So you'll have $2,000, and you'll have a ring. And in back of him, I, his, his wife was standing there with her arms crossed, and she looked at me, because I could tell he was serious. He was absolutely, and I was like, I was actually, that's a pretty good offer, you know? And, and uh, her, her mom looked at me and she said, he couldn't pay you enough to make, make it worth how mad you'll make me if you do this, because she wanted a big wedding. And apparently I was more afraid of her than him. And so I, I turned down the offer, but it was probably, I, we were probably married six months later. So I, yeah, but anyways, um, I tell you that because I, I didn't know her family very long. I didn't know her dad very long. I got to know him, and, I, and now I've known him for over 30 years as my father-in-law. And I don't, I don't know how many people you've met in your life where when you first meet them and get to know them, they just seem like a really good person, a godly person, someone who loves Christ, loves the Word of God, a person of prayer. I don't know how many people you've met like that, and 30 years later, you, you realize they just keep getting better and better and better. And I've said this before, I mean, I've, I've met a lot of really good godly men in my life, but I've never met anyone 
that I respect more than my father-in-law. I don't know anybody who loves God more, who loves people more, who loves the word of God more, who spends more time in prayer, any of those things. Just an absolutely amazing man. It's been such a blessing to be a part of that family. Um, and so my wife's got a sister and three brothers. They got, they're married, they have kids. Everybody lives kind of pretty close to each other in the Portland area probably see each other once a month. Everyone gets together for a birthday or something like that or a holiday. Once a year, we spend an entire week together as a family down to the beach. Her dad is truly the patriarch of the family and, and the one who brings everything together. And uh, he's been sick and so it was just really, really hard for everybody when we found out last week that he's been given less than six months to live. Um, he has cancer and uh, he's he, so... It's just actually been very crushing, very difficult, uh, feeling really dark. I got to uh, spend uh, most of the day with him yesterday, and it was a hard conversation. You know, it was kind of, um, uh, he wanted to talk about the funeral, so I'm the, you know, so I'm the, I'm the professional Christian in the family, so I'm the one who does uh, the, the weddings and the funerals. And uh, so, you know, we kind of talked about, he, he, he made it really clear uh, where he wants to be buried and how he wants to be buried and what scripture he wants and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, you know, everybody's kind of coming to town, those who are out of town coming to town to see him and, and um, to kind of just spend a little time with him. And uh, it's, it's just really hard. There's a lot of tears. Um, it's just, it's very dark and it's a very difficult time. Um, but there's also uh, a lot of peace and a lot of confidence. You're just sitting with him yesterday, and he, he's basically, I can't get out of bed anymore without you know, two or three people picking him up and getting him where he needs to go. Uh, but to have a conversation with him and just to hear uh, his confidence, that he knows where he's going, that he's not afraid of death, that he's excited to meet his Savior. And I yeah, I tell you this because um, we are in a passage that is also very dark and, and very difficult, and there's a lot of hard stuff going on right now where we are in Luke, and I, I'll just tell you this, that it's going to stay hard, and it's going to stay dark, and it's going to stay difficult until April 15th uh, and 16th, which just happens to be Easter weekend and just happens to be the weekend that we'll be covering the resurrection. But it's just really dark and hard between now and then. And I tell you this because it's the dark, hard, um, difficult situation that we are talking about. We've been talking about and we'll continue to talk about for the weeks to come. It's that dark, hard situation that makes it possible 2,000 years later for a person to literally be on their deathbed and to smile and to say, I know where I'm going when I die because of what Jesus Christ did for me 2,000 years ago. It's still making a huge difference today. And so we are continuing to, to walk our way through this. And I, I tell you this, um, not to discourage you, but to let you know that there, it, as hard as it is, there is a silver lining that's coming up in all of this. Now, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples where uh, he has been for a while now um, on, on the weekends as we've gotten together and talked about this. He, he, he uh, went to the upper room at the uh, different uh, gospels all together tell us they gathered there. Uh, he washed their feet when they came in. He, he told them to follow his example. He 
revealed that one of the disciples would betray him. This was very confusing because you know, everyone was like, who's that going to be? And, and then sometime during the meal, Judas exits, but nobody really knows why. They celebrate communion together. We talked about that recently. They had what we call the stupidest argument in the history of stupid arguments right after that as they argued about who was the greatest of them. Um, Jesus warns Peter of the three denials, and you know, Peter says, that'll never happen. And then Luke kind of goes over, he doesn't cover this, but John tells us that there was a lot of teaching that took place that evening. Um, Luke's got other things he wants to point us towards. He didn't talk about that. And, and then last week, we looked at how Jesus quotes the Old Testament to reassure the disciples that all the really hard stuff that's about to happen was actually foretold in the Old Testament, and they don't need to worry about it. And we come to verse 39, which is kind of a bridge verse for us as we go into the passage this evening. And he came out, so now they are, they are, they are leaving the upper room and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane, and we're told that this was his practice in the evenings this last week in Jerusalem. He would go there in the evenings, he would pray while he was there. Uh, Gethsemane actually means olive press, and you can still go there, they say to this day, and some of the trees uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they tell us, were there 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was in that garden, which is kind of an amazing thought when you think about it. So Jesus went there and he went to pray, and uh, that's where we're gonna start tonight, is that Jesus goes uh, to pray. He's gonna go with the disciples, and he's going to pray there with them. And verse 40 is where we're gonna kind of work on this. It says, and now when he came to the place, that is the garden, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down, and he prayed. So um, Jesus knows that Judas has gone to get the soldiers. He knows that very soon he's going to be arrested, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be crucified. And it's interesting to note what he doesn't do. He doesn't, he doesn't freak out. He doesn't, you know, doesn't get angry with God. He doesn't run. I don't know what, what you do when things get really hard, when things get really dark or threatening or difficult, but Jesus goes to prayer. Now, now prayer is just simply communication with God. And I say that because a lot of times we have this tendency to make prayer just really complicated when it's not. It, one of the ways you can think about it is this. God speaks to us through his word and through the Holy Spirit and we speak to God through prayer. It's kind of just that simple and prayer is just cultivating a relationship with God. Prayer should not be complicated, although we tend to make it complicated. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a conversation. And so sometimes I get in conversations with people about prayer and they'll be like you know I don't know if I know how to pray right and stuff and and I could tell you this for instance if you study the Lord's prayer the disciples prayer it's meant to encourage you just to talk with God but sometimes we'll take like the Lord's prayer and then we'll make it a formula and we'll make it complicated and did I get it right and that's when you're just completely missing out on what God has for you it should not be complicated prayer should be conversational it's just communing with God, it's sharing your heart and your joy and your fears. The, the right way to do prayer is just to be honest with God. Now, there is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are all uh, co-equal, they are all eternal, and they all share the divine attributes, and, and they live in what we would call perfect community or unity. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. 
And Jesus is the one who enters human history, not, not the Father and not the Spirit. It's Christ who comes and takes on a body like ours, is born of a virgin who lives among us, and, and somehow he is separated from the Father in ways that we really cannot quite understand. He was uniquely connected to the Father, but there was also, a, he's, he's no longer in heaven with the Father, and theologians have wrestled and grappled with this over the years, what does this mean, and, and how did this all work? And, but when Jesus prays to the Father, we, we get to listen in. And we kind of get to hear the conversation that he has. And, and the passage we're going to look at tonight gives us some really interesting things about that conversation and that relationship. Now, Jesus taught the disciples to pray to God as Father. And, and this is actually revolutionary because Old Testament believers rarely referred to God as Father. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's only about a dozen instances where God is referred to as Father, but it's always when the nation is, is praying to God corporately, never an individual who's praying and addresses God as Father in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus comes along, refers to God as his Father, tells us to do the same, and this is revolutionary. Now, I say this because I've observed over the years that even though prayer should be simple, it, we often struggle with it, and people often ask me, how do you pray, and you know, what am I supposed to pray, and when am I supposed to pray, and why? Sometimes people just ask, well, if God already knows everything, if God already has a will, and if God's going to do whatever God's going to do, have you ever thought that? Then why pray? Why even bother? Well, when you start thinking like that, you need to remember, don't focus on the mechanics of prayer itself. Focus on the Father. Focus on the one that you're praying to. For me, I put it this way, prayer is, prayer is more like a text than an email, if that makes any sense. So I really hate email because for me, email is all about the mechanics. So if I'm writing an email, I always feel like I have to have a salutation, and then there always needs to be like a, an introductory small talk paragraph, right? Like, how you doing, and how the wife and kids, and you know, kind of make some small talk, and, and I got to make sure the grammar's right, and then I got to get to the point in the second paragraph, and I got to make sure there's no made-up words in there, and then there's the whole signing off thing, and I don't know why I always make email complicated, but texts are really simple. Like, my daughter and I text each other all day long. She's in Arizona. I just be like, hey, Abby, how's it going? Or sometimes I don't even put her name. She knows who it's coming from. I'm like, you know, is it snowing there? You know, it's just like, we just, you know, I love you, and I, there doesn't have to be a really complicated, and for me, that's really what prayer is like. Now, a few important things happen in prayer. Actually, a lot of things, but a few that I want to point out for you. One is, prayers have a way of revealing who we really are, and we see this in, in Jesus' prayers, but prayers reveal a lot about us. Uh, you know, what you pray for and don't pray for reveals a lot about you, how you pray for things, uh, who you pray for and who you don't, uh, what, you, what you care about, if you trust God or not. These are things that often come out, and these things are revealed in Christ's prayer as well. Another thing is that uh, we always say God responds to all of our prayers. Now, I used to always be told, you know, God has one of three answers, yes, no, or later, right? Now, that's not exactly true. We could even get more calm, but I'd, I'd say there's at least four. There's yes, there's yes, but, sometimes God's going to change it a little bit. There's no, and there's later, but God always responds to prayer. And then, prayer changes us. And this is a big one for me. Like prayer is a way of bringing us into alignment with God and his will for us. I cannot tell you how often 
I'm wrestling with something. And so for me, if I'm really wrestling with an issue or, or maybe trying to understand something in the word of God or praying for something, for me, the way I always work it out is I just got to go for a run. There's just something about going out along the river, going for a run, and I just pray for this thing. And here's what always seems to happen. What I'm thinking when I'm done is different than what it was when I started. God has a way when we come to him honestly and openly, when we talk with him, God has a way through his spirit of changing us, of changing our thinking and, and giving us wisdom and understanding. Prayer actually changes us. So Jesus comes to the Father in prayer and one of the things he does here is he's facing his distress. Now, this is the idea of Christ being distressed is an interesting one to me because up until now, he has shown no fear in the Gospel of Luke. But, but now in the garden, there's an abrupt change. And it's, it's hard to really kind of understand theologically, but he is overwhelmed with dread. Now, I've read all sorts of commentaries that try to explain it away, but folks, it's just there in simple Greek. Uh, not English, but simple Greek, that he was distressed. And we'll look at that. Now, sometimes we're stressed because we're facing something and we don't know what's coming next. Have you ever felt like that? Like, you know, God, if I just knew what was coming next, I would be okay. Jesus knows what's coming next and that doesn't make it any easier for him. In fact, that's the thing that's making him distressed is he knows what's coming next. So in verse 42, he prays. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. We'll talk about that cup in a minute. Nevertheless, notice what he says, not my will, but yours be done. Now, here's the issue, as best as I can explain it. In eternity past, the Trinity had got together and agreed on a plan for saving the lost. Now, as I understand Ephesians, if I'm understanding it right, all of this happened before the world was created. It, it happened, they had this counsel and this plan before Adam and Eve sinned. It wasn't plan B, it was always plan A. And somehow, as the Trinity got together and discussed this, the plan was this, that the second member of the Trinity would come and he would be born of a virgin and he would live among us as one of us of a perfect life and he would die for our sins. We talk about this every week. Now, the, the gist of Jesus' conversation with the Father that we're looking at tonight is this. He's basically praying in the garden and he's saying to the Father, so the day we always knew was coming is here. This is it. This is the day. And people are coming to arrest me and they're going to reject me and they're going to beat me with their fists and they're going to crucify me and Here's really the issue. I will become their sin. And Jesus is just saying, I am in agony here. I don't know how that makes you feel to think that Christ was in agony. So he says this, so I want to have just a final conversation with you, Father, to make sure. So we're on the same page, right? I'm, I'm reading the right plan. And going on in verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven. Angels basically have two things that they do. They, they're messengers and they're ministers. And on several occasions now, we've seen angels come and minister or strengthen Jesus. It says it's strengthening him. And, and being in agony, there it is again, in agony, he prayed even more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down 
to the ground. There's a couple of theories about what's going on here with the, with the blood. Um, it says that they were like drops of blood. So some theologians think it's a metaphor, and you often find this in the Bible when it uses the word like. It's trying to say it wasn't maybe actually that, but it was like that. On the other hand, there is a known rare medical condition that's brought about by extreme duress in which capillaries actually break and blood actually comes out of the skin. And theologians think that's what was happening, that Jesus is dealing with extreme agony and distress. He's very much troubled. In fact, in Mark, he kind of explains this a little more and he says this, it says, and began to be greatly distressed and and, and troubled. In fact, the, the word greatly distressed there is one word in the Greek and it means to be utterly astonished. And the word troubled there in the Greek means to be weighed down, heavy with stress. So you get the idea. This is, Jesus is feeling the weight, the, the, the pressure, the agony, the, the distress, if you will. Distress at this moment. Let me ask you this. Any of you feeling stressed out today? <laughs> Any of you feeling the weight of something that, that's crushing you? Maybe you know what's about to happen and you know it can't be avoided and you don't know if you can endure it. You can't sleep. Your, your mind is racing. Maybe the doctor has given a diagnosis. Maybe you, you got a phone call in the middle of the night. And I'm a pastor. When I get a phone call in the middle of the night, it's never a good phone call. I've never had anyone call me at two in the morning and go, hey, I was just thinking about you and what a blessing you are and I just thought I'd call and say hi, right? Nobody, I turn my phone off anyways. But right, maybe you're facing rejection. Maybe you got fired. Maybe it's the death of a dream. And in those moments, I think it's reasonable to say to God, I don't like this. <laughs> That's okay. It doesn't make you unspiritual. I don't, I don't want this. I'm not sure I can endure this. I'm confused by this. I'm distressed by this. That's where Jesus is. He can absolutely, totally relate. Sometimes people don't know what to do with distress. You know, sometimes when we're feeling distressed, we'll just downplay it, or, which Jesus doesn't do, does he? He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't say, yeah, you know, it's nothing. Or maybe we'll find a distraction, or we'll get angry with God, or you know, we'll just go on Facebook and whine and complain about it in general terms. Philippians gives us some good advice about how to do that, what to do with this. It says, do not be anxious about, about what? Anything. anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In fact, it goes on and says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's kind of what's going on here. He's distressed. He's stressed. What does he do? He takes it to the Father. That's God's word to us. He gets on his knees. He stays in the moment. He doesn't run. He stays there. And then Jesus humbly submits. He submits. Now, in that day, um, God's people would typically stand when they would pray. But Jesus is going to kneel down in this passage. And to kneel down in prayer was a posture of submission and humility which reveals a lot about how he's approaching the Father at this moment. I don't know how many of you kneel when you pray, but um, you know, mo- most of, I, I was thinking about this, most of my prayer is standing, because I don't, just even sitting is, 
I can get kind of, you know, kind of fuzzy in the head and stuff. I sit too long. And so I like to pray when I'm running. I like to pray when I'm working in the yard or walking around. Or, and, and I don't really kneel a lot, but there's three times a week I kneel. Same time, same place every week. About 5.45 in the evening on Saturday, about 9 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, and about 10.45. I pray before, I'm on my knees before every worship service that I preach at. And I do it because it is a posture of submission. It's a posture of humility. For me, it's just both reminding myself and saying to God, right, I need to submit to you. This is about you. You are the one who's in charge. This is not about me. And this is what Jesus is doing here. It's a posture of submission, of humility. Jesus doesn't get angry with the Father about this plan. He's not impatient. He's not throwing things and getting upset. Instead, he kneels. And in kneeling, he is releasing the distress through submission. So as he gets down on his knees, he's letting go. He's saying, this is hard, this is tough, but I trust you, Father. You, you're sovereign. And he just, he's able to let that go as he kneels down before the Father. He goes on and he says, nevertheless, not my will, not my will, but yours. Yours be done. Jesus says to the Father, I know the plan we agreed on. I'm not really digging the plan right now. So I just want to double check with you. Don't miss what he's saying. Is there any other way? Is there any other plan? But if not, then I will submit to your will. Submission to God is just honest, but it's being vocal, emotional, and yet it submits. And it's been noted that submission is different from agreement. Like maybe you don't like a situation you're in. Maybe it's difficult. Maybe you pray it would go away, like Jesus did. Maybe you would pray, God, is there another way? Is there another path? So I don't believe Jesus is just saying something here he doesn't mean. He means what he's praying. Is there any other way? Jesus says, I would prefer to not drink this cup, but I will submit. I will submit to your will, Father. And this is an important part of prayer. That we talk to God, that we are candid, that we are honest. He knows, he knows the truth anyways. Yeah, we seek his input through the word and the Holy Spirit and wise counsel. And then we submit. We submit to his will. And Jesus' example is that he submits to the Father even though they are equal. And sometimes we think, well, I only have to submit to people who have more authority than me. But Jesus and the Father are equal. And yet Jesus submits to him as an example to us. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. So the cup, the cup is the source of all the tension and the stress that Jesus is feeling. I, I don't doubt that the idea of being physically beaten and nailed to a cross wasn't the source of some of the stress, but I don't think it was the big source of stress I think what was really distressing Jesus was the cup that he's talking about. The image I almost get is this, that Jesus and the Father are sitting at a table 
And in the middle of the table is this cup. <laughs> it's just right there. And they're both looking at the cup. And Jesus is saying, you know, I know our agreement. I know the plan was that I would drink the whole cup, drink everything that's in the cup, but I don't want to drink what's in the cup. Is there any other way? And I just picture the father just sliding the cup across the table to Jesus and saying no. Now, why is this cup such a big deal? Well, Jesus knew that on the cross, he would become sin. And this, you know, at this point in the sermon preparation, I got really bogged down, but I can't because we have a lot of ground to cover. So I'll try to make this quick. But I think one of the reasons that it's difficult for us to understand why this is such a big deal to Jesus is because we, are, we just tend to be kind of comfortable with our sin. <laughs> it doesn't really bother us the way it bothered him. We tend to be okay with our sinful words. We say mean things. We say sinful things. We're not, we don't lose sleep over it, you know. We're like, well, I know that wasn't a great thing to say. That was, that was kind of mean, but we still sleep okay at night. It doesn't really bother us. Our, our sinful thoughts that we have, we, well, you know, a lot of times we're like, yeah, well, everyone does that. Everybody has those thoughts. And it just, again, we don't really lose sleep over it. Our pride, our selfishness, our prejudice, our greed, our lust, our anger, our self-righteousness that makes us feel like we're better than other people, our sins of omission when we don't do the right thing to do, we just do nothing. So often, we're just okay with that. We're not great with it. We, you know, we know we're not perfect. But it's not like we agonize over it. It's not like we lose sleep over it. We don't, we don't get on our knees and cry over it, you know. We're kind of okay with it. I read an article the other day, and the article basically said this. It would, again, it was sh- shocking to me in one sense. It, it, the, the basic, it was about college students, and it, the idea was this. It said, parents... This is the end of the article. Parents need to get real about the fact that most college students, including theirs, are cheating, drinking, sexually active, looking at porn, taking recreational drugs, and it's normal. So stop freaking out, parents. And when I read it, I was like, but that's kind of the attitude of our world today. Everyone's doing it. Sin is normal, right? Now, of course, when I read it, I'm like, that's not true. (laughs) Everyone is not doing those things, but of course, our world wants you to think that they are. So that you would think, well, you know, it's not a big deal. Everyone's doing it. Sin is normal. It's not a big deal. So parents don't make it one. You ever get that, parents? Like, don't make a big deal out of something that's not a big deal because everyone's doing it. Now, let me give you the flip side of that. Jesus Christ, who created you, who loved you, who designed you, placed you on this earth, came down to this place, (laughs) lived among us, lived a perfect life of love. I mean, if you want to summarize what he did, I think he said it really well when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that was Jesus. He perfectly loved God, and he perfectly loved every single person person that he came in contact with not half of them you know a lot of times we're like if I just you know get 51% right I'm I'm on the good side but Jesus always got it right he fought against every temptation resisted every sin 
He was offended by it. He wept over it. But he had fought the good fight and lived a perfect life. And now the plan was after living a perfect life, he would go to the cross and take all of our filth and all of our sin and all of our shame that we're not even really ashamed of. But it's so offensive to him, he's like, I can't even drink this cup, Father. Are you sure I have to do this? I mean, isn't that the irony that we're just so... I mean, if we had been there, we might have said, Jesus, what's the big deal? It's not that bad. <laughs> Jesus, like, I can't. This is horrific. Like, can you see the difference here? So again, in our society, it's like, so, come on, it's not a big deal. Jesus is like, well, if you had to pay for it, you might think differently. In 2 Corinthians, it puts it this way, for our sake, He made him to be sin, to become sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the result is this, Jesus must drink the cup for us. The cup is filled with the wrath of God or the punishment that is equal to the sin that's been placed there. So one way of picturing it is it's a cup that's capturing all of the sin of all of humanity. It's a big cup. And every time someone sins, a drop kind of goes in that cup. And now in order to pay for that sin, God's wrath is going to be meted out, a punishment that is equal to the sin that has been put there. And Jesus looks at the Father and says, is there any other option besides me drinking this filth? But this is why Jesus came, to drink the cup pay the price for our sin. And on the cross, he drank every single drop of the wrath of God against sin. He endured it. It was physical. It was emotional. It was spiritual. Now, this is often lost on us because Christians don't like to talk about God's wrath today. To talk about the wrath of God is so primitive. It's so like 1960s. It's because we've evolved, you know. In in the church now, we just talk about the love of God. We're not about the wrath of God. We've kind of left that behind. we're, We're smarter, we're better, we're more compassionate. We believe that God is love, but not wrath. Here's another way of putting it. One theologian said this, God is love, but love is not God. You see the difference between those? God is love. God is perfectly love. But love is not God. And a lot of us, what I mean by that is a lot of us think that anything that's what we think is love, then that's God. And what we forget sometimes is that God is perfectly love, but he's bigger than our little concept of love. We might think of it this way. God is love plus. His, His attributes include not just love, but all sorts of other things like righteousness so that he always does the right thing, Uh, that God is grace. Grace means that God gives us what we don't deserve. He's mercy, which means he doesn't give us what we do deserve, which is judgment. God is, but, but God is just. He always does the just thing. God didn't, you know, he didn't wink at Hitler and say, oh, you killed all those Jews. Oh, but you weren't that bad. He doesn't wink at that on the At the same time, he doesn't wink at your sin or or my sin because he's just. What would you think of a judge who heard a case from somebody who was guilty of murder and the judge just let him off? You would think, that isn't a good judge. Neither would that be a good God. 
yes, God is love. Yes, God is holy. Holy other is what it means. He's good. He's truth. He's faithful. He's patient. He's wise. But here's what we do today as Christians. We like to make love kind of the big thing. So God is love. And what we don't realize is when we kind of emphasize that, we downgrade everything else. We say, well, God is just, but he's love. So any way that we think that his justice, you know, kind of interferes with love, then we just kind of set justice aside. But that's not the way it works with God. You can't just take one attribute like love and elevate it above the rest because the truth is when you do that, when you kind of elevate love and say everything else falls to the side, you're also taking away what true love is because true love is just and true love is patient and true love is faithful and and righteous and good and wise and truth. It's all of those things. And anytime you diminish those things, you diminish love. You make love less until love is just a fuzzy, meaningless thing, which is what, what it's become in our world. Or think about it this way. You've probably heard the term, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Right? You've heard that? We, we say that all the time. And there's a lot of gospel in that for us. But you need to remember this. God doesn't just judge sin. God will judge the sinner. Not just sin. God hates sin. God will never say, oh, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. He will never say that with sin. God will never think that our excuses are sufficient. God doesn't compare, he doesn't care if you compare yourself to somebody who's worse. Well, you know, you know I wasn't Hitler. Like God will be really impressed. Oh, well, okay then. In Colossians, it puts it this way. This is some good, good advice for us. Notice what it says. Put to what? Put to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He's talking about sin. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is what? Yes. Not just against sin, but against the sinner. But Jesus is about to drink the cup of wrath. And that's why he's in agony. And that's why he's in distress. Because he's about to take it all on himself so that we don't have to. Which brings us to this point, that Jesus takes wrath and gives us something else instead. And uh, I'm gonna ask the guys if they'll go back at this time and they're gonna grab the elements and we're gonna take communion together. And I wanna invite you, if you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, as they pass it out, to just grab a wafer and grab a cup and hold on to that. And I'll lead us in that in a minute. But I want to just finish up the text here that Jesus takes wrath and gives us love. So God hates our sin. That's the bottom line. He hates our sin. But because he loves us, right? Because God so loved the world. It's you and me. So he hates our sin. But he loves those created in his image that Jesus drinks the cup of wrath so that we can be forgiven. And the guys, go ahead and come forward at this time and pass those out. So that we can be forgiven. So that we can receive the love of God instead of the wrath of God. So that we can become children of God through faith in Jesus. That when we die and stand before God, there will be no wrath for us. That's the point. There will be no wrath. There will only be love because of what God has done for us. And an important word in the Bible is the word 
propitiation. In Romans 3, 23, it talks about this very thing. Let me read this for you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We've been talking a lot about this as we've been moving towards the cross and what Christ has done for us. He goes on and says this, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, right? One of his attributes, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So he brings in this idea of propitiation. The word literally means an atoning victim or a a substitute for sin or to divert or to remove judgment. And the picture is this, that the wrath of God was upon us because of our sin. So we're going through our life and, you know, from God's point of view, there's a cloud of wrath that's kind of hanging over us as we go through life and as we sin. And Jesus steps in and he takes the cup from our hand and he drinks the entire thing. And he suffers for every last drop of wrath, for every last sin you ever have committed and you ever will commit. It's a big cup. And he drinks the entire thing, downs the whole thing, dies on the cross so that we may receive something different from God. Instead of receiving wrath, we get to receive love. In 1 John, in fact, he makes the connection for us. Notice what he says. And this is love. So let's, let's define love here. He goes, this is what love looks like. Here it goes. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. So the cross is where both the wrath and love of God are most clearly seen. Because on the cross, we see both the wrath of God, we think, well, why did Jesus have to go to the cross in the first place? Again, this goes back to our sin, to its offensiveness against God. Somebody had to pay. And on the cross, we see the penalty, we see the severity of sin, but we, we also see the love of God, that he would pay that price for us. Another way of putting it is this, that the cross is where wrath was poured out on Jesus so that love could be poured out on us. And that is the gift that God has given us on the cross. The Apostle Paul, when he talks to the church about taking communion, he encouraged them to examine their their own lives before they took of the bread and took of the cup, which we'll do in just a minute. But I want to give you a moment to do that. Paul says no one should ever take the bread and the cup lightly, but we should always do it with soberness. We should always do it having first taken a moment to talk to God, to confess anything that needs to be confessed, to thank him for the gift, to not enter into this lightly. We enter into it joyfully, but we also take communion seriously. Because again, remember, this reminds us of what Christ did for us on the cross. So I want to give you a moment to do that. Just talk to God. It may be that you need to confess something, repent of something, or just thank him. I just need to thank him for what he did for you on the cross. Just thank him that he has taken your wrath and left you with nothing but love. What a great thing. So I want to give you a moment to do that, to talk to the Father, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll take the bread and the cup together. Let's go ahead and pray.
So as we wrap this up, I want to just send you on your way with something to think about, something to do, just a little bit of a challenge, because I know you guys like good challenges, and so um, I kind of want to close with this. In um, verse 45, it says this, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And when Jesus goes to pray, he calls a team. (laughs) Uh, The team kind of failed him. They fell asleep. But let me just ask you this as as we close. How about you? Are there people who are counting on you to be praying for them? Right, that's, we're a family. That's what we do. We pray for one another. We support one another. We encourage one another. Who are the people around you that really need you to be praying for them? And are you faithfully doing that? And with that in mind, I just want to encourage you as we, as we close to think about doing a few things. The first is this. Just to um, be realistic, if we can, to think about praying for three people this week. So would you just think about writing down the names of three people, three people who are close to you that you are going to commit to praying for this week. You're going to pray for them. You're going to ask. In fact, I would encourage you to ask them, to talk to them. Maybe they're sitting next to you afterwards. Not now. Afterwards, you can ask them, how can I pray for you? You might give them a call tonight. You might text them. Don't email them. And um, just say, you know, how can I, how can I be praying for you? And write it down. And then do this. Pray for them twice a day. Now, if you want to pray three times a day, that's cool. But I'd say three people twice a day. Now, don't leave it to chance. If you're not in the habit of doing this, I'd encourage you maybe write it down, put it in your schedule, set an alarm, set a timer. We're talking about something that's so important, something that's so needed that you don't want to just leave it to chance. And then I'd ask you to do one other thing. Contact each person one time this week. Just contact them. Again, you could just text them and say, I'm praying for you today. How's it going? Is there any, you know, anything else? Maybe it's your spouse, your kids. Maybe it's a parent. On Wednesday is day one. So today we're setting aside for prayer and fasting. But I want to encourage you this week that we would be people who would really be supporting one another in prayer. And maybe the last question I would have for you is this. Is there something in your life that you need to be praying about? Is there something that you need to be kneeling down before the Father about? Maybe it's something you're in conflict with him about right now. Maybe it's something you need to submit to right now. And I would just encourage you this week to go to the Father, to take it to him, to be honest, to be open. Again, maybe you need to share with a few people and say, you know, please pray for me in this. I'm, I'm really wrestling with God right now. And I would encourage you to get on your knees to take that, that posture of submission. To let God take that lead. To release you from the agony and the distress. And to embrace the gift that he gives. Well, let me pray for us and, and we'll let you go.